Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We're going to start off with a primer and I hope some useful information about Something you don't hear about very much, probably because there's not a quote-unquote breakthrough drug for it. And that thing is dry eye disease. Now, about 1 in 20 people in the United States actually have dry eye disease. And your odds are higher if you're female, older than 50, wear contact lenses, take diuretics or antihistamines, Uh, or have any kind of connective tissue disease like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. Furthermore, people who have had stem cell transplants for various cancers are also associated with higher rates of that. Interesting. No one's quite clear, clear on the why of that. And, well, dry eye disease is basically due to a problem with tears, And tears are actually really complicated. They didn't teach me this in medical school. They really didn't. They told me about punctal plugs and a few other things. But tear film actually is made from uh, four different glands. Okay, You have the mimbomian glands at the base of the eyelashes. You have the lacrimal glands, which are subcutaneous and look something like salivary glands if you bother to look it up and uh, check what they look like. You have accessory glands, which are just tiny little things, and goblet cells, which help make mucus. You've also got goblet cells, by the way, in your gut and in your genitalia. So other things, of course, matter. The health of the eyelid, the health of the ocular surface, and really key, hormonal shifts and other abnormalities. But roughly, you can divide dry eyes into two categories, deficiency of tears and evaporated dry eye disease. And, you know, aqueous tear deficiency, there's something wrong with the lacrimal glands. They aren't making enough tear volume. Now, people who are dehydrated may notice dry eyes at at that time. Uh, People who are in a circumstance where there's a lot of wind, blowing across their eye, that'll evaporate uh, the the teardrops. But for the most part, what we're really seeing with dry eye disease is evaporated dry eye disease, a much more common uh, condition. And there's normal amounts of tears, but they evaporate too quickly. And often this is because of those four glands that I mentioned that are necessary for making the tear Well, somebody gets the recipe wrong, and often it's the cells producing the lipids. So in water, right? Lipids float on water, right? Anyone who's ever made a salad dressing knows that. Well, if you don't have a good oil layer or a good lipid layer on top of the tear film, you're, you're going to evaporate. So it's almost acting as a barrier. As it evaporates, and here's where we get into the vicious cycle thing, as it evaporates, the tear film gets hyperconcentrated. So think about salt water and think about that's like normal saline. You can put that in your eye and it just feels like tears. But if you put uh, super salty stuff in your eye, it's going to burn. Well, as your tear film gets more concentrated, it starts to irritate the surface of the eye because there's inflammatory cells there to protect from infection. 
and you start to damage the surface of the eye, the conjunctiva, you get damage of the goblet cells, which then don't produce as much lipid, which then causes more rapid tear film evaporation, and you end up with a perpetual vicious cycle in dry eye disease. Once you've got inflammation, it irritates the nerves, right? And then you change the normal neural pathways for blinking, and you blink more, and you get corneal hypersensitivity, so you blink more and squint, and the whole thing just loops on itself and feeds itself. People with metabolic syndrome, uh, syndrome sorry, like prediabetes, and p- people who have primarily sedentary lifestyles have higher rates of this. And if you have stress of any kind, but especially oxidative stress, which can come, by the way, from, from physiological or mental stress, your sympathetic nervous system dominates. And what happens in the case of that is that you make fewer tears. So the whole thing is just a loop. There's some things you can do. Aerobic exercise actually increases tear secretion. Eating low glycemic foods improves dry eye symptoms. So getting off of the stuff that's going to give you diabetes and getting on those fruits and vegetables, it'll actually help. We're going to talk about some other downstream things, but let's talk about diagnosis first, because you're probably wondering, well, do I have dry eyes? And the problem with this is that doctors often get the diagnosis wrong. For one thing, uh, one of the symptoms, one of the main symptoms is completely counterintuitive. Someone comes into my office and they say, my eyes feel dry, and I look at them, and they've got tears running down their cheeks. Their eyes look watery as hell to me, but they're irritated. And the teardrop, no matter how much there is, isn't soothing because it doesn't have the right components and it's full of inflammatory mediators. Because of the inflammatory mediators, a lot of people are irritated and they may have blurred or fluctuating vision. And that's another one. They tend to doctors and you're busy in your primary care practice, send them off to the ophthalmologist to get their eyes checked, but you haven't really checked their eyes in the first place. You've just referred them. Paradoxical tearing is an important way that we get confused. And you have to rule out allergies because that's common. And you also have to rule out toxic conjunctivitis. Did you know that medications can cause dry eye? And we have to be really careful uh, about those medications. I'll list them at the end of this. But, you know, there's questionnaires and stuff. But one of the other things you want to look at is other medical conditions. Look at the eyelid, doctor, carefully. Look at the skin of the face. Atopic dermatitis and rosacea can cause themselves the initial irritation of the eye, which leads to the disruption of the tear film homeostasis and creates evaporated uh, dry eye disease. And also you got to look at the anatomy. You got people who have uh, people who have Bell's palsy, for example, their eyelid doesn't close completely because they have a paralysis of the seventh nerve or a partial uh, paralysis. So in that circumstance, their eye doesn't close completely. And at night, the, the, the part that's exposed to the air dries out and gets very irritated. One of the best tests for this is to have your doctor do a fluorescein test. And if you think you might have dry, disease, dry eye disease, when you go to the ophthalmologist, uh, and this can be done in an ER, most any place that has a slit lamp, and you simply put a drop of fluorescein. This is a, a uh, fluorescent substance that we use to find uh, corneal 
uh, abrasions and corneal ulcers because it'll pool. The cornea is supposed to be as smooth as a sheet of curved glass. And if there's any kind of flaw in it, the liquid fluorescein will pool and will be easily able to see it. So you put the fluorescein in there and then you watch the evaporation of tears. And if it evaporates more than 10, in less than 10 seconds, you've got an abnormal test. An emerging test is actually a chemical test looking for the level of something called matrix metalloproteinase 9. And this is a very, very important inflammatory marker that's released by immune cells when there's inflammation and hyperactivity. And it's really important in cardiac disease. In fact, it's one of, it's probably going to be one of the things in five years that we'll be checking when we think someone might be at risk for an imminent heart attack because it's that inflammation that happens that creates the weakness in the vessel in the plaque that leads it to rupture. And, you know, we've already talked about that cascade a hundred times, so I won't belabor the point. But some people, if you have high MMP9, you can do well with cyclosporin, which is an anti-tumor rejection drug, but is actually often used in dry eye. It's used, for example, in people with Sjogren's syndrome, which is where you have an autoimmune condition that attacks the lacrimal ducts. And so you have low tears, but you end up manifesting as dry eye. Now, here's one that people will not have thought of, and I didn't know until I came across this. If you have a history of bariatric surgery, that's weight loss surgery, or you have malnutrition, like perhaps you have an eating disorder and you're eating a very, or you're very, very poor and you're living on ramen, you're going to, you could get a vitamin A deficiency, and this can cause dry eye disease as well as problems with the retina. The medication classes, I promised you I'd tell them about that. Antidepressants and isotretinoin, which is an acne drug, that can, one of its complications, that's Accutane, is severe, severe uh, evaporative uh, dry eye disease. So now let's move to treatment. There's lots of artificial tears, and they basically come in liquid and emulsified, so they either contain oils or they are primarily fluid. The fluids ones don't last very long. Artificial tears, you want to get preservative-free because, surprise, surprise, uh, if you've got dry eye disease and you have inflammation there, the the preservatives you're eventually going to become allergic to. And I had that problem when I first started wearing contact lenses after about oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years, I became allergic to the preservative in the contact lens. Uh, it was called thimerosal. It's an iodine. Uh, it, it's a product, that, excuse me, not iodine. It's a mercury-containing product, very dilute amount of mercury, extremely good at killing bugs and sterilizing things, but I became quite allergic to it. And uh, yeah, that was fun. Taking it took a while to figure that one out. And uh you can't use anything with a preservative more than four times a day. So unless you've just got mild disease, it's a bad idea. What you want is the stuff that comes in single-use vials. That doesn't have any preservatives. And yes, I know it's an environmental eco-crime to generate little bits of plastic, but you know sometimes a girl's got to see. Uh, don't get the eye drops that have a vasoconstrictor, the visines of the world, the ones that promise to clear the eyes, because you're going to get rebound redness 
after using it for a while, something called tachyphylaxis, which is very tacky, because what happens with that is that you forget you're you're using a drug and suddenly you're uh, resistant to it. So you have to use more. But the other side of that is when you stop taking it, the thing you were trying to treat comes back with a vengeance. So when people used to get addicted to nasal sprays for runny noses because they'd keep using it for their allergy, but then whenever they stopped using it, they'd get horrible, horrible congestion. Getting people, let's say, detoxed from their nasal decongestant was one of the lessons I had back in the 80s when it was really an epidemic issue. I think most people have gotten the message now. There are oily ones, but the problem is they blur the vision. Those are best used at night, and there are some lubricating gels to use. Uh, there are also steroids, which we don't want to use. Turns out oral or topical azithromycin can be very helpful in dry eye, di- eye disease if, if you have melbonium uh, gland dysfunction. Melbonium gland dysfunction will respond to anti-inflammatories, and azithromycin is very anti-inflammatory. And look on your eyelids under high magnification for little pimples. If you have that and dry eyes, you might respond to a topical antibiotic for its, not for its bacterial properties, but for its anti-inflammatory properties. The Sjogren and the graft-versus-host disease people, the uh, bone marrow transplants, they actually do really well with uh, platelet-rich plasma, which has anti-inflammatory factors that are helpful in uh, treating dry eye disease. And one last thing, and this is from the functional medicine alternative world, and I always like to finish off with, a li- when I get all sciencey on you, I like to finish off with something a little herbal. Sea buckthorn oil, which you can buy at the health food store. It is an omega-7 You know omega-3, you know omega-6, maybe you even know omega-9, but have you heard about omega-7? Well, remember what we said about evaporative uh, loss being the big issue? Well, guess what? It helps prevent your tears from evaporating. It increases the lipid layer. So if you're having problems making enough lipid to create that moisture evaporation barrier, this is your stuff. And I have found anecdotally from my patients that it also helps with vaginal dryness. About 500 milligrams a day. You can take it up to 1,000 if you need to. Give it a try. I'm going to do just a little science lesson, very quick. We already had uh, we had clinical medicine. Now we're just going to talk a little bit about a story that came across my desk from the new scientist. And I thought it would be a nice little science lesson And it's also a challenge, a different kind of challenge. So it's about rotavirus vaccine and diabetes and an unexpected thing that was identified in Australia by a woman named Kristen Parrott. She's at the University of Melbourne, and she looked at rotavirus, which is a common severe diarrhea in young children. Rotavirus is the one that puts the babies in the hospital. We, it can really be serious and the, Every year in compromised children, there are fatalities. So a vaccine being given in Australia was added to the routine immunizations in about 2007. So Parrot and her colleagues went back and looked at the rates of diabetes in the eight years before and then after the introduction of rotavirus. 
What they found was a 14% drop in type 1 diabetes in children age 0 to 4, but no change in children 5 to 14. This is called a natural experiment. So their interpretation is because the children in the study under age 5 were born after the introduction of this vaccine, which is given in infancy in the first year, Uh, It has to be given, by the way, before you're exposed to the virus to protect you. That makes sense. And rotavirus infects the pancreas cells as part of its natural history. It it gets in just like the ACE2 uh, receptor was hijacked by COVID-19. This one gets uh, into a receptor on their surface. And once it's in there, it multiplies and it kills some pancreatic cells. And this is bad because the dead cells and the virus get confused in the immune system's little robot mind. And so it starts making antibodies against the beta cells, the pancreas cells that make insulin in some people. That's their hypothesis. And so they're looking at uh, following this up. It's intriguing, but it's definitely not proof that rotavirus causes diabetes. So how could you explore this further? And this is my challenge for you. I'm going to ask you to be a scientist and think about what you would look at, how you would follow up on this hypothesis. Well, I'll give you a couple just to get you rolling. You could look for rotavirus antibodies in the diabetic kids. Uh, You could take the older cohort, take their blood, see if that reacts against rotavirus directly. Uh, in the more commonly in kids with uh, diabetes. Uh, you could look at, it would take a lot of money and a uh, lot of numbers to make this work. You could track non-vaccinated kids going forward because there's always going to be people who choose not to vaccinate their children. Uh, this study that they're talking about here, there's a big hole in it. I don't know if you see the hole. I'll, I'll Spoiler alert, I will tell you this. They, they did not actually go back and look at the kids' records. They just used age as, you know, bef- under age five, uh, before the introduction of the vaccine or over age five. And that, in my opinion, is, it's a stage one kind of science. The stage two science would be to, you know, one, graduate student could make a few bucks and maybe a publication credit, just making sure what percentage of the kids with diabetes uh, were vaccinated and comparing that to the uh, percentage that weren't vaccinated in an age-matched cohort. What else can you think about? What else can you think of as a way to study this? You want to try out your science chops? Think it through. Uh, Let's see. I'm going to move, pivot, I believe they call it in the biz, to uh, an email just to get your minds rolling. This from one of our old friends, uh, Shal, in Israel. Shal is often out there listening, and uh, big shout out to you, Shal. This one is about hypnosis and urination, and uh, Shal adds, He's, uh, by the way, he always tells me he's a 75 or a 70-something-year-old male and healthy. Can hypnosis help with the number of times I wake up at night for urination? Well, Shal, at 75, you probably have some prostate enlargement. So one of the first things 
that I would say is you want to eat a low glycemic diet at night. That means not a lot of starch or sugar because insulin actually, if your insulin levels are higher at bedtime, you're more likely to have to get up in the night for urination. Don't ask me, but it's a thing. So making sure that you maybe eat your big meal at three or four in the afternoon, if you're going to bed at say 10 or 11, and then just very lightly uh, greens, low glycemic foods for the rest of the night. See if that makes a difference. Saw palmetto, I always talk about that, and nettle. Uh, there's something called beta cystosterol, which is also really helpful. And uh, let's see, what else did I want to tell you? Oh, if you have stress doing meditation or relaxation before you go to bed, some sort of uh, deep breathing exercise. There's plenty of wonderful guided uh, relaxations that you can get off the internet now. Something like that can be helpful. So I think that covers it. By the way, what is it about the prostate? Well, at night when you're lying down, your prostate gets fuller of it of fluid. It actually expands a little bit, just like your sinuses often get stuffy when you lie down and then better when you stand up. So this is uh, this is partly a mechanical problem, but most of us don't want to sleep with our head mm, below our prostate. So I don't think a mechanical fix is too likely for that. New targets for preterm labor. A little more science. Uh, hang on to your hat. Researchers have identified an interesting hormone. They've also identified, uh, sorry, an interesting protein. It is also the cause for preterm labor. And this is something that I was taught was due to hormonal fluctuations in the placenta. Nah. No, that was, lo- that was a nice logical s- story. But now it turns out it's actually a protein called Pizo-1 that exists in the smooth muscle of the uterus. And its job is to keep the uterus relaxed uh, ensuring it continues to stretch and expand during the 40 weeks it takes a fetus to grow. Now, if you stop and think about it, it's kind of odd when you think about it that uh, the muscle, uh, the uterus is a big muscle. Um, the outer layer, of course, the inner layer is is a thick lining that supplies blood and it has a eventually when there's a baby, a placenta hooked onto it. But the outer muscle layer, it's the only muscle in the body that's not attached to any nerves. It's not regulated by nerves. And it's also the only muscle that doesn't get to contract maybe in an entire person's lifetime, depending on whether they ever get pregnant. But it has to do the thing muscles don't do very well, which is resist contracting when stretched. And boy, does that puppy have to stretch. It has to remain dormant for 40 weeks despite, as it says in this article, significant expansion and stretch. Yes, indeed, as that fetus, one cell, can't even see the thing, uh, it develops into a baby, you know, eight pounds. This is amazing. This is from the University of Nevada in the United States. They looked at tissue samples of smooth muscle of the uterus, exploring how the heck does this happen? And what keeps it from contracting during until it's time for labor. So they stretched the uterus tissue, comparing that to other smooth muscle tissues, and they found that it activates something called piezo-1 channels. 
when those open, this is like most neurological activity, it opens, calcium molecules flood in, and that creates a cascade. That cascade activates an enzyme called nitric oxide synthase, and we love us our nitric oxide. It's very good for a lot of vascular things, including lowering your blood pressure. Uh, this ca- this particular cascade promotes and maintains the uterus in a dormant state, so it won't contract. And I love the names of the these genes. Sometimes the, the, the genes are really boring, uh, or they're named after the chemical that they make, but but these guys are great. So Pisa 1 controls the uterus by working in a dose-dependent manner, upregulated by the chemical Yoda-1, and downregulated by a chemical called Dooku-1. That's Dooku with two O's. I swear I'm suddenly in a Star Wars movie. When Pisa 1 is upregulated, the uterus remains in a relaxed state. However, in preterm tissue, the uterus expression of Pisa 1 is decreased. It, it's downregulated. So you switch off the dormant signaling and the uterus contracts and initiates labor. So pregnancy is amazing. Uterus, the uterus is enduring mechanical stress because it's being tranquilized by this Pisa 1. It's controlled locally and coordinated by stretch activation that's suppressed. It, there's no hormonal stuff come from the placenta or the ovaries involved at, at all. So this is the first of several examples tonight of, yeah, we were wrong about that. Now, this is very important. And the first thing, first place anybody's going with this is drugs, drugs. Maybe we can find a drug that will activate this so that we can get that labor stopped because preterm labor, my friends, is expensive. The, the cost of morta- the mortality and the morbidity. In the United Kingdom alone, there are 60,000 premature babies in, uh, in the UK. I, I don't even want to think about how many there are in the United States, uh, and I didn't have time to look up the statistics. So there'll be a lot, We probably much higher than uh, per capita than England. We're going to go to another email. This email from Susan in Aptos. Subject, PMS for depression and other brain problems. So Stanford has run a study using deep magnetic brain stimulation called Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Which is different from TMS, which is transcranial brain stimulation. Uh, it's not still not invasive. Neither of these are invasive. They're basically using magnetism to alter the electrical patterns in the brain. The trick is learning the code, right? I mean, you, is it 10 beats per second? Is it 100 beats per second? We won't know uh, unless we play around and try it. To continue with Susan Kay's question, it's successful for 80% of patients for relieving depression. But now there are explorations on how neuromodulation therapy affects the brain. What treatments are possible? Alzheimer's or Parkinson's? I think she meant to put a question mark there. Well, okay. So before we go any further, I want to recall to those of you that were around in the 70s, a wonderful movie called Charlie, which was based on a book called Flowers for Algernon. And 
Uh, I also want to recommend a book that just was released. It's by a, an author named Richard Powers, who won the Pulitzer for his previous book. This book's called Bewilderment, and it is exactly about uh, what happens when we do brain stimulation or brain reinforcement. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. But it also brings up some of the issues that we've got here. So are we fixing something? Or are we patching it? And that is a big question when we talk about uh, brain stimulation, because most of these studies, including the study that you're quoting at that 80%, aren't following people up long term. We have made progress, though. It was a small study recently published in 2021, and it looked at this therapy. And let me describe the therapy. You're going to sit in a chair and someone's going to bring a large electromagnet near your head. In this case, they're going to bring it to the left prefrontal cortex, and it'll be about three inches from your head. You won't hear anything or see anything, but as they turn it on, it's going to be pulsed 10 hertz waves. Now, that's theta waves. Theta waves are what's going on when you do brain biofeedback and you get into the meditative state, when you look at people who are hypnotized or in trance, they have theta waves. When you're in deep sleep, you get gamma waves, but that's another conversation. The theta waves are what they're inducing. And in the study, the subjects were people who were very who were treatment-resistant depression, which basically means we've tried a bunch of drugs, maybe even electroshock therapy, and they're still depressed. That's all we know. This has been developed, and they did it a small study in about 30 people, and they got a bigger improvement in the treatment group. About 80% of them responded. They weren't totally relieved of their depression, but they went from severe to moderate or mild. That's still a big deal. But what may not be clear to you is how resource-intensive this is. It was six weeks for 45 minutes every day, five days out of seven for six weeks. That's a lot of time, and particularly device time for an expensive device. When you talk about something like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, you're, we're really talking about something really different. As I said last week on the program, uh, when we were talking about uh, psychedelics and depression, when we when we look at what's going on in a depressed brain, we see a lack of connectivity. We see fewer uh, little dendrites coming off of the synapses, and we see uh, we see less electrical connectivity between large regions of the brain, less traffic on the road, basically. And when they are treated post psychedelic, in this case, um, it was psilocybin that I mainly was speaking about they increase the brain connectivity. And if you were putting a magnet on the brain and inducing electron flow through the process of induction, you're going to potentially create better connectivity for a while, goose the traffic, so to speak. And they saw improvement on test scores at the end of this study, but there wasn't a long follow-up. And the question is, how long is it going to last? Depression is labile, all right? We know that we can change it with lots of different things. Here's the problem, okay? If if someone who has depression dies and I look at their brain under a microscope, I cannot tell any difference from their brain 
and the brain of an undepressed, healthy person their age. None whatsoever. It's not a physical, structural change in the brain. And this is in distinct contradistinction to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Both of these are physical changes in the brain that can be identified with a microscope and some stains. So the idea that we're going to reverse that with magnets is straining my credulity. I'm, I'm just not sure that it's the same thing. And I don't think we can hope for that, really. Uh, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I just have my doubts that by the time you have a diagnosis of either Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, things have been, as one of my friends says, cattywampus for quite a while. And the structure of the brain has actually changed in a bad way. So I'm afraid I'm rather un, uh, I'm, I'm just rather pessimistic about the possibilities of that working. So let's uh, jump to another story. And uh, I want to just, you know, we, I said I was going to have a theme of, well, I guess we were wrong about that. Well, here's one that we were wrong about in a big way. And I did some, after I saw this in the the Journal Watch that uh, the the New England Journal of Medicine puts out a kind of abstract, call it a uh, executive summary sort of thing, aimed at different, uh, at different subspecialties. Steroid injections are not necessarily benign. Sometimes people with hip arthritis, they come in, they have severe pain. You give them an injection of cortisone in their hip. But recently, reports have suggested that these injections may actually, with, at a not insignificant frequency, result in rapid destruction of the hip joint. This was coming out of a study, I think it was probably Kaiser in Hawaii. I think Kaiser owns Hawaii, actually. Um, Anyway, it conducted a study of patients with rapidly destructive hip disease. This was between 2013 and 2016. And what this is, is rapidly worsening hip pain and radiographic changes. Basically, the joint space disappears, the femoral head collapses and stops being round, and is displaced upward. So it's you look at that and you're like, ah, okay, call the orthopedic surgeon because we're replacing this hip. So they did a case control analysis. They looked at 40 patients with the rapid hip degeneration, and they compared it to 717 who underwent replacement for arthritis but didn't have that rapid change. And 87% of the rapid hip degeneration patients but only 45% of controls had received at least one steroid injection. Now let's stop for a moment. Remember, who am I going to give a steroid shot to? I'm going to give it to the person who comes in and says, the pain control is not working. I want more Vicodin. And I'm going to say, really don't want to addict you to opiates. How about if I give you a steroid shot? So is the rapid hip degeneration causing the steroid shot or is the steroid causing the rapid hip degeneration? They're associated but you haven't proved causality here. So the odds ratio is eightfold, 8.6. So to have rapid degeneration and bad pain and get a steroid shot, those are definitely cohere statistically, but, but you need to prove cause and effect. And those who had received multiple injections, especially with high dosage steroids, were at higher risk. 
than those who had just received one 40-milligram dose. Looking backwards is the only way to see something like this, and I don't think that we have are really sure, but there are reasons, quite common reasons, to think about steroids causing bone degeneration. We certainly know that people who take oral steroids for prolonged periods develop osteoporosis, and we certainly know that people with osteoporosis are more likely to develop rapid degenerative arthritis. Uh, Certainly the collapse piece and the bad x-ray changes, if the bones are weak, they're going to collapse more readily, right? So maybe this is really serious and we're doing something that could be really endangering people. Uh, The odds ratio for knee arthritis, not great either. 8%, this was uh, 8.6, knees are 8% odds ratio for rapid degenerative knee disease. But steroids only work for about six months at best when you inject them into a knee. So I'm going to abandon the practice, quite frankly. After having looked at this, I'm like, yeah, no, not going to go there. In a related story, platelet-rich plasma is all the rage. It's cheaper than stem cells, and the promises are great. Uh, any number of people in the la- in my social group, not 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 only patients, have told me about their platelet-rich plasma injections for fill-in-the-blank, including cosmetic uses, and as I just said in an earlier story, dry eye disease. So we're going, th- it's going, it's having a thing right now, PRP is, and maybe it's something, maybe it's nothing, but in this placebo-controlled Australian study, people with mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis were either given three weekly intraarticular injections of PRP, or they were given salt water, and they didn't know. They were followed by magnetic resonance imaging and pain assessments. Follow-up assessments were completed at 2 and 12 months after treatment. And at 12 months, both groups had improved the same amount, 12, two points. Um, the tibial cartilage Volume loss, so this is a a more objective measurement rather than what the person said on a 10-point pain scale. Take an x-ray, look at the tibial cartilage. How much did they lose? Well, the answer is both about 1%. So it didn't do much. Okay. Uh, And I want to just tell you that I think we can say from this and and from others, that it may work for some people, but I think it's a largely placebo effect. And I'm sad about that. I want it to be real. I want it to be real. I love it. It's cool. You draw blood, you spin it down, you take the buffy coat and re-inject it and magic happens. That would just be so cool if it were true. But, oh, well, there we go. Now, let's see. We have a caller on here. Real quick, we're going to take one last question from Aileen. Hello, and uh, my question, please, how many grams of sugar is in an ounce of alcohol? Well, that's, that's a, you know, no, that's an interesting question because there isn't, it depends on the kind of alcohol. Now, that's called yeah. residual sugar. So, um, and, mm-hmm. you know, pulling this out, and I'm probably going to get this wrong because I don't have time to look it up, but... It, the residual sugar of wine is, unless it's a dessert wine, less than 10%. So if you have one ounce of alcohol, uh, you're, you know, I'm going to use grape juice, and I'm going to say with, with grape juice, it's about 120 calories for 
eight ounces. So one ounce is going to be, you know, roughly roughly 20 calories. Let's let's call it that. So 10% of that is is two. You wanted to know how many calories or how many grams. There are four no grams. Sugar. Well, there are four grams per calorie, four calories per gram. Mm. So if we've got two calories, then we're going to have, uh, then we're going to have one, uh, we're going to have a, a fraction of a gram, right? Two calories. Uh, mm. So four, four calories per gram of sugar. Or, okay, does that help? So, not a lot. It's four calories per gram. Um, so there's five grams in a teaspoon, so that's why a teaspoon is 15 calories. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about, uh, let's it's it's going to be uh, 12 calories, so three grams roughly on in the in the most uh, sweetest wine that you're probably going to find, short of a dessert mm-hmm. wine. Now beer has more calories, more carbohydrates, so it has. Of course. But if we're talking sugar. I, the only way I can calculate it is to work from grape juice. <laughs> wow. I have no idea what the calorie per ounce. For beer. Yeah, no no clue. Because the alcohol turns into sugar, and I just wondered how. No, the alcohol gets metabolized differently. It's It doesn't oh. turn into sugar. It goes down a different pathway. Oh. we got to go. Okay. Thank you very much, and we'll have to ponder the mysteries of the universe some other time. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.